I don't think that white men have to Karen because they built Ken into the system. The system is Ken. Karen is Ken. <laughs> Ken is the Ken is the opposite of Karen. That's what I'm going to use for this. So okay, you know, <laughs> talk your now. shit. Talk your shit. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. Oh, another episode of Humanize. We're so happy and so blessed to have the phenomenal woman here today with us. Our guest, Miss Crystal Lanise. You know, that name Crystal is just, I mean, my sister's name Crystal, so already it's great vibes, you know, I'm already feeling like I'm talking to family. So you, you know, I'm excited today. Um, and just to let you out, you know that this is a powerhouse. So get ready for, for some heat. And Yo, Emily, how are you feeling, though, before we just get to this work? I am so excited to connect with Crystal. Crystal, welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, thank you for inviting me. Yeah. I'm excited. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm, you know, I feel like I often feel at the beginning of our episode, which I love, which is like, I have no idea what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, like, <laughs> what's going to happen next? So excited for that. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> this is where we do our best work, you know, when we don't know what the final product is. We're just baking this cake and hopefully it tastes good. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you, you know, and uh, let's get to it. So with over 15 years of experience, Mrs. Crystal Lanise has helped organizations develop agile workflow processes and curate equitable and inclusive workplaces through result-driven methods. Using cultural intelligence as a catalyst for change, she converts theories into tangible practices that are measurable and attainable. She balances work by exploring life as an elder Black millennial woman who enjoys comic books, music, small business shopping, plants, and naps as a form of resistance. Damn. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> yeah. This is what we do. Like, you you just, you gave us chills, and I'm loving how we just gave you chills. So we just reciprocal chill, you know? Like, I love I'm, that. Listen, all good vibes. Ah, let's get to the work, man. Yeah, so, Crystal, you know, we... We're, we want to focus today on, um, we want to, I want to hear a lot about the DEI work that you do and how you go about it. And one thing that really fascinates me about your, your work, and I'm so excited to, to hear, is your focus on Karen, your focus on historical Karen, present day Karen. And so I, I think there's probably a lot of different ways to understand what that that is. So could you tell us a bit about your story and the, the turns and twists in the road that led you into doing this DEI work and, and focusing specifically on caring? Yeah, sure. So it's interesting that you mentioned the idea of like me focusing on Karen. And the more that I think about that, I realize that I really don't focus on Karen. I focus on making sure that Karen isn't focused on me so that I can mind my own black business. <laughs> like uh-huh. <laughs> like that's, that's, yeah. that's really my, you know, work 
And in trying to yeah. mind my own black business and giving the autonomy for other people who look like me to also mind their own black business, Karen comes up mm-hmm. in the conversation mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. must be addressed. So mm-hmm. I will say that's the shift. Like she's not that important to me. Right. Removing her resistance is important to me um, in, in that yeah. particular, if I look at it that way. But I've always gravitated toward um, just equity and fairness, even on like a kid level. Like if I saw something happening on in kindergarten and somebody's, you know, ice cream was stolen, then I was the person who had to say something because that's not your ice cream, you know? So it wasn't, you know, obviously it wasn't called DEI work. I think in kindergarten, my teacher told me that I talked too much, actually. <laughs> like that, that's how, you know, it came across. So, you know, I actually read uh, Malcolm X's autobiography when I was in fourth grade. And it was only because I had a cousin, in fairness, all of my siblings and cousins are older than me. I was the oops baby in my family. So my siblings are 10, 12, and 14 years older than me. And all my cousins are in that same range. Well, most of them are. And so, you know, they were high school and, you know, college when I was in second, third, and fourth grade. So the material that they were bringing while I was running behind them, you know, was material that far exceeded, you know, what I was learning in fourth grade. I can tell you that. Um, And so like I spent the summer reading Malcolm X's autobiography because my cousin was really into it and the movie had come out and, you know, watching the movie and then reading the book. And it was a huge book, it was a thick book. And uh, I, it took me all summer to read it. I had to look up a few words. My mother was like, if you don't know it, look it up, like, you know, (laughs) figure it out. And so that's how I went. And then when I finished my dad, we went to this gas station. I was a daddy's girl. We went to this gas station and they had a Malcolm X hat. It was black and it just had the white X. And I was like, dad, I got to have this hat. He's like, it's not even going to fit. Like, and yeah, it was a snapback, but I mean, I was a fourth grader. <laughs> like there was a whole adult hat. As a matter of fact, I'll send you, I have a picture of me, my dad, my mom, my brother, my nephew. I mean, I grew up in a rural town, so you can see the dirt road behind us. And we're like leaning on my dad's old Cadillac and I have a Malcolm X hat on with like shorts, a t-shirt and some kids. So like that. I would love to see it. I want to see that. I will send that picture to you so that you get a good idea of like where this came from. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, and I faced inequities even in K through 12. Recently, there was a documentary that came out um, streaming on Amazon. Of course, now I'm blanking on the name. And I'll think about it in just a moment, of course, but it's about the murder of Michael Jordan's father. But they talk about the second episode of that. They call it the deadliest county in the country. Well, that's the county I grew up in. The pictures they're taking are of my main street. And so we dealt with racial trauma. We, you know, and we were at a very big crossroads because in my particular area, there are indigenous people, the Lumbee Indian tribe. And then there's white people and then there's black people. So we're dealing at this intersection of racism, of anti-black racism, anti-indigenous racism, racism within communities of color, in addition to also fighting white supremacy. So, you know, I dealt with things as young as, I mean, my kindergarten teacher told me that I wasn't going to amount to anything, you know, like that's, that's the kind of stuff that I grew up with. Um, there was always like an uphill battle. I remember making a really high score on a standardized test in like third grade. Someone leaked the test scores, a white parent challenged that I couldn't possibly have made a higher score than their kid. And the school actually made us take it over. 
And I remember Whoa. being called, yeah. I remember being called out of recess and was like, Crystal, you know, you're needed. And I'm like, you know, it's recess. Why would I want to leave that? And so walking down the hall, there's a classroom and the young lady, her mother, not the mother, but the, the girl who's my age, she's sitting in the classroom and they're like, we need you to take this test. And so I took the test because I didn't know, I didn't know why I was taking the test, but it was because they were challenging whether or not I was smart enough to make the score and more importantly, smarter than her. Well, I'd scored higher the second time that I took it and she did worse the second time she took it, you know? Oh. So <laughs> like, <laughs> like, all, and, and the beautiful thing about that is my mother knew that that's why they were retesting me. My mother didn't tell me that until I was older. Because she was like, she didn't want to make me nervous. She was like, you could do what you, she was like, I trust my kids' abilities. So she didn't say that. So here I was fighting inequities that I didn't know I was fighting. And so that was kind of where my work started. Of course, you know, involved in protests in college, may have chained myself to a few things, went to New Orleans protesting. Actually, ironically, Donald Trump was trying to buy land after Katrina. And I was like, why would a rich person buy land that they're telling poor people that they can't get back on? That sounds fishy to me. So, like, you know, uh, we actually built an entire class um, around it and we took ourselves to New Orleans to try to figure this out. So I kind of thought that my work in activism was this temporary thing once I left college and got into corporate world. And then I quickly realized that the same systems on the outside were inside. And so I realized that there needed to be activists and abolitionists in the workplace because the same oppressive systems outside of it were influenced and were influencing inside and that we needed, you know, underground railroads and spies and everybody else everywhere because they were everywhere. Um, and so that's why I started doing like DEI work wherever I worked. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 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 All right. So I guess I got to lace up my J's because you just dunked on me. Okay. It's oh, good. oh, I um, didn't, I didn't know. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. You, you, you just did that. Um, I'm going to be honest, you know, uh, when I say this, people gonna look at me crazy, but I want to thank Karen, you know, because she started the civil rights movement, you know, when she started with Emmett Till. You know, and, and she did and she did that, you know, like we who knows history was made, mm -hmm. you know. And so without giving her giving them the power and but understanding that it was always existing until the brilliance of the mother and the courage of the mother to have that open casket of her own son because of the, the situation was was something that I mean, it took it to another level. You know, uh, I, I hate to say I need you to back up. I don't know what what you're referencing okay mm. Woo. okay okay so basically <laughs> and mattel you know he was a dude you know back in the day i'm just gonna paint it as if it was a, a little quick movie little snapshot little trailer and he was just trying to holler this this, this white girl she was or whatever he was doing they they took it as he was doing something like flirting when a black man should know his role and not flirt with the white one and so he he whistled or whatever, and next thing you know, he, he was lost. And when he was found, um, he was found so dismembered, it was hard. He, he, he Mainly, you could not have an open casket. But the mother said, because of what happened to my son, because of racism, I need the world to know. And back then, you know, like TV, you know what I mean, all that, the media, that, that was a huge, 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 huge thing. Not like today. Like, this is bad. 
every day we say something that's existed for a while but just to see that the murder on swole on steroids like that started the, the civil rights movement and and made people um angry enough to to hit the streets and, and so Emmett Till is memorialized as possibly a person that started the civil rights movement of um what we do see today yeah mm. I like that you even brought up that, you know, we can consider the woman that he whistled at Karen because on her deathbed, she admitted or not on her deathbed, but eventually before she died, she actually admitted that she lied. And she did this like in the 90s. Like it was like late. Like I, I, it wasn't like a long time ago. Like she admitted that she lied. And I think what angered me about her admittance of it is that one, we already knew that. Um, there was a trial for his murder and he got all, all of them got off. It was her husband, her brother, and like his, her brother-in-law who murdered him. And then on top of that, his mother fought, uh, Mamie, Emmett Till's mother, like was fighting her entire life to have her son's murder uh, come to justice. And she dies. And then this white woman admits that she was wrong. I'm like, you couldn't look that mother in her face before she passed away. You knew, you knew that, you know? Um, so I, I appreciate you even bringing, bringing that up. Do you have like, um, <laughs> I don't even know, like a working definition of Karen. Is there like an archetype of Karen? Is it every white woman? Is it like, how, how can you help me grasp Karen? Yeah. So to me, Karen is more of a behavior than it is a person, um, or a persona, so to speak. Right. You know? And so Karen, I look at as a switch. But white women turn Karen on and off, right? So mm. to me, when I think about Karen, I think that Karen is a white woman who, when she is met with resistance of her behavior, if she is met with resistance for her own personal plan, and she feels as if the people who she is competing with or who is causing her harm or resistance is someone who is undervalued than who she considers herself right? Like she doesn't see them as value, then she pulls being Karen. And that comes Mm. out in more than one way. It typically comes out in very passive aggressive ways, you know, using microaggressions, saying things to people. Um, I don't know, making phone calls while black people are trying to have a cookout in the park simply because you don't like that black people can find joy in the midst of the white supremacy that you created. I don't know, like whatever it may be, you know, it's always, there is an issue that's impacting me and it's somebody else's fault. And because I am who I am, I shouldn't have to deal with it. That, that's what a Karen is to me. I think the other thing, what I think about Karen is that Karen is intelligent enough to know that she sits at the intersection of being both white and being a woman. She has had to have her own struggles from being a woman. But when her struggle with being a woman comes in competition with a woman of color, she's going to always lean on being white. And that's the caring part. She is always Mm -hmm. going to lean on being white. And more importantly, she is going to play to the role of white men and white supremacy because white men and white supremacy have always felt that white women needed protection. And Karen knows that white women need protection. So when she can't do the dirty work herself, she falls on the white supremacy and patriarchy to do it. But then when patriarchy gets in her way, she wants to talk about collective feminism with all women. You want both. She straddles the fence. And that's what a Karen is to me. Mm-hmm. Wow. See, you... Wow, you cut... Ca- you... Wow. Go ahead, go ahead, Emma. Go we ahead. both are like... 
Can I just ask for one? Like you cut, you started to to um, help me understand this more from the the patriarchy perspective and the nuance of of being a woman and being white. Is it very different behaviors that that a white man would do? Like, can a white man, Karen, or is that just like a really different thing? I don't think that white men have to Karen because they built kin into the system. The system is kin. Karen is Ken? the role. Ken is the Ken is the opposite of Karen. That's what I'm going to use for this. So okay. you know, talk <laughs> your shit. Now. Talk your shit. <laughs> White men don't have to play a role because there isn't any systemic oppression. Yes. White women have to play a role uh-huh. because they still face oppression as being a woman, not so much okay. being white. Um, and okay. so you know they don't have to play a role. There's always going to be an existing way to do what they want to be done. See, what comes up for me right now is Karen, safety, and the perception of unsafety. Like mm. the perception of being like, I am unsafe right now, so let me back up. And to like, you encapsulated the, the question. That's why I'm sitting here like, yo, are you reading what I'm writing? Like, where are you in this room right now? Yo, back <laughs> up out of here, bro. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> like, I'm looking at saying, yo, shit, because I... I I promise you, I just wrote, you know, safety and a perception of um, being unsafe and how dare you enjoy life the way I enjoy life or smile the way I smile because don't you know who I am, you know? And so the, the work that we do is, is uncomfortable and we, we oscillate and we try to make sure we define the word safe, unsafe, uncomfortable, you know? And so when you're talking about Karen, who's feeling like the work that we do right now and humanize is unsafe, Mm. unsafe or uncomfortable because we're addressing a situation that has made you feel as though you, you have the backing of an army. There's nothing you can do. That's not going to be protection because when you brought in what, what about a white man, white man don't got to do shit. We good. Like you go anywhere, you do anything. I wake up, I don't have to worry about poverty. I don't have to worry about education. I don't have to worry about housing. I don't have to worry about nothing. Now, white woman, you're lucky you're white because I got you. That's like walking through the hood and you got a gang and you're like, bro, well, what the fuck I got to worry about? I got my boys with me. And so like, but when you go somewhere, you don't got your boys with you. Now you shaking like, oh shit. Let me, let me figure this out. So Karen's literally have a whole in the U.S. have a whole system that's built to protect them and do as long as they don't go against that. So when you're talking about like the women's suffrage and things like that, when they tried to break it and you have beasts like Ruth Bader Ginsburg who went against that system. Now it's like, oh, nah, chill out, Ruth. Understand you are still a white woman. You know what I mean? So it's like, yo, you just brought that home for me. And gave me chills with that situation. So I, I am, I appreciate that. That was, thank you. And in a lot of ways, it's, we know that white supremacy is violent. We know that patriarchy is violent. I feel like Karen is a terrorist because she uses tools of violence when it is convenient, right? Like, and, and you kind of put this idea like a soldier behind you. You know that patriarchy is violent, but yet you will be willing to turn to it because you know that white supremacy, one of the things about patriarchy and white supremacy is that 
there's this idea that everybody else belongs or has to be at the service of white men, even white women. But they are willing to trade that temporarily for you, for white supremacy, white men to remove their barriers and then get back to their work. That's a real dangerous weapon you're playing with. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like that that's a drug that you're playing with here where you specifically go to patriarchy to handle problems. And then you want to then remove yourself from it, right? Like, like to me, that's that's dangerous. That's like napalm. Like you're dropping bombs at places and then moving out. And then you're waiting for all of the destruction to clear your path so that you could then say you shattered a glass ceiling. Nah, you didn't shatter a glass ceiling. Like you dropped bombs on things and moved other people out of your way. Like that's different. Wow. See, the, damn. That, so basically you, what you're saying, because I like to, to, to ask questions back so I'm not tripping so the convenience that they have is like a convenience and what they call activism or convenience and and being nice until it gets to the point where you have to either pick a side and I'm going to pick the safest side that has a track record of always winning that's just the truth if you a gambling person you're not going to gamble on activism because we got a whole list of dudes that did that and are six feet deep right now. And so if I'm caring, I'm like, ah, you know, shit sound good. Um, yeah, I would love for everybody to be equal. But if it comes a, pl- a place in a time where I have to choose between falling back on something that I know is wrong because of the color of my skin or making sure that I push a movement, risk it all. I don't know. You know, like, hey, please get this black man out of here. Please do this. He's looking like he enjoying himself a little too much. And he may, from what I see, can cause a problem because he's smiling too long. See, I went into this episode thinking that we just be talking about some care and shit. Like, but now I'm feeling as though you teaching me a class. And I love that. So thank that. Again, I can't I, I'm applauding right now. Now, this is a good conversation. I think it's just a conversation that we have to start yeah. having. We've got to strip this out and call it for what it what it is. Another way to think about Karen is Karen is white privilege personified. You know, it kind of walks around in a way that's very, I mean, without a care in the world to, to, to a certain degree. Think about it like this. You know, Black women sit at the intersection of race and gender and along with other layers, but we'll just start there. Oftentimes, Black women don't get to be Black women. We have to be Black. We don't get to just be women. Like we never get to just be women. We have to be black first. If that was the case, we would have been voting uh, in 1920, (laughs) right? Like we wouldn't have had to wait till the black folks could vote in 1965, right? So if you think about this, the privilege of Karen is that she can be both white and a woman. Black women don't get that. I have, I have a question. So I want to be really mindful not to center whiteness too much here, but I feel like these questions might be helpful to other people and for my own work. So I'm wondering if you have as lovely as it would be to, for me to think of myself as an exception to this and that I don't, (laughs) Karen, I know that that's not true. And so wondering if you have any like activities you do in your DEI work or reflection that you could leave me with or, or, or work through here, like for me to understand how, how I, Karen, how I, I pull that when I, I sit here and I'm, it's so tempting to be like, oh, that's something other people do or people in the park do, or, you know, so yeah. 
Um, one of the activities I've had a few folks do in the past, especially from the workplace, is that when it comes to white women, I've had white women, and I'll ask them a question. I'll say, I'm going to give you 10 to 15 minutes to reflect. I want you to jot down every example of a time where you felt like you were being mistreated at work and that you felt like you had to stand up for yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, just, you know, jot down what it was and, you know, what it was about. Um, And I was like, you know, tell me if you, you know, you felt like someone was saying something that made you uncomfortable, if there was something systemic, like, you know, being passed out for a promotion, um, if someone was getting praised for something that you felt like you contributed to and, you know, you didn't get the praise. And when we start looking at some of the examples of when they do that, we start unpacking them. And um, what they start seeing is that some of them, you didn't deserve the promotion. And so one of the things about that is you felt like you deserved something. You didn't have the track record to really prove it, but then you found a way to circumvent the consequences of that, right? Or, or you found a way to soften the impact that it was going to have on your life, right? That's a Karen moment, right? You have found another way to cushion, stop, or slow down right? Whatever the impact was for your own behavior or the lack of your own behavior in a way that other folks can't, right? Like that's a Karen moment, right? Choosing to start crying when someone tells you not to touch my hair, right? How, how is it that you all of a sudden are upset because you aren't allowed to touch my hair? I don't care if I blow dried it today and yesterday it was in an afro. That has not, I don't want to touch yours. So I don't know why you want to touch mine. And someone telling you not to do something, Um, And a lot of those examples, one particular group that I worked with, a lot of those examples, it was when they had interactions with Black women and they would say, well, she was aggressive with me or I tried to be her friend and she wouldn't. And so, you know, and I'm like, so I was like, but were you trying to be her friend or were you trying to get in so that you could steal from Black women and then peddle it as your own and get ahead? Like, which one were you really trying to do? You know, like you don't build a friendship just because you decide to sit down. I shouldn't be your friend just because you said hi. You know, that that's something that's earned. Um, I think another thing that happens is that white women often do not see a correlation between their current behaviors to anything historic, because we typically talk about white supremacy from a patriarchal perspective and white women Long historians have long kind of painted white women as like these passive bystanders during slavery and reconstruction and the civil rights movement. Um, and that white women really came on the scene during the suffrage movement for women. But that's not the truth. I mean, let's talk about it. So there was this. And I think that that's why so many current day white women um, and like even with your own question, like, I don't know how that behavior looks like? How do I know if I'm behaving that way? It's because no one showed you the correlation of your behaviors um, that would dictate that, right? So, you know, like, for example, the Emmett Till example that we just gave, uh, George Stimmy was the youngest person in the United States to be executed in an electric chair. And he was executed. He was a young boy. I think they said he weighed like 80 some pounds and they determined that he murdered two white girls. Two young white girls were murdered. That's sad. No child should be murdered. But how was a child himself who was less than 100 pounds able to murder two white girls and drag them out to a field? That's not possible. They executed this little boy and he was so small that they had to stack chairs in the electric chair because he didn't even reach it. That's a caring behavior. Because so no one thought at any given point 
as a mother, as a white woman, as anybody, common sense would say, how can someone less than 100 pounds handle two more bodies and do all like that? This doesn't make common sense. The other thing that folks forget, um, there's a great book that I highly recommend that anyone reads. Uh, Stephanie Jones Rogers wrote a book called They Were Her Property, White Women as Slave Owners in the American South. I highly recommend that you read that book. She talks about the fact that one of the glimmers of hope that white women had, white girls had, was that they could own slaves. That's one piece of property that they could own. And they were often gifted slaves as birthday presents and Christmas presents. Imagine having a person, a human being delivered to you. And um, I recently uh, did a talk with the Visionary Squad, and it was a training for white women who wanted to do the work. And one of the things that I revealed to them in that is that to me, it was that glimmer at that moment as white women, white girls being oppressed, knowing that they couldn't own property, knowing that they couldn't ever do anything, um, have the right to vote. Being gifted a slave was a form of empowerment. It was the one thing they could own, right? And the fact that we created this dynamic where the only way that a white woman could see power was through the destruction of a black body is exactly why we have Cairns. It's because that was the only time that you saw yourself as an equal to white men. And again, that goes back to you being willing to trade that. And so my thought is we could do activities all day, but more than Mm -hmm. likely, if you are unsure whether or not you've engaged in caring behavior, you have engaged in care behavior. Oh, I'm You're sure unsure. <laughs> You're just unsure as to whether or not somebody else noticed it. <laughs> well, yeah. And I, if I can start to see those moments, those, you know, for me hearing that there's like, there's a big ego part in that, in like, how, how am I constructing my ego and identity? What am I willing to trade and to know historically the women that have come before me in my lineage have traded dignity and life of other people is like that that tells me something about my dna you know that tells me like yeah i mean if you think about it um like in the late 1800s karen became the center for protection and and when i say karen i'm saying white women i mean there were laws policies and even brute force that was levied to actually protect white women from black men's what they called animalistic nature i mean we had scientific journals magazines letters, newspapers, all insisting that the abolishment of slavery was actually going to lead to white women being in danger of being raped. Like that was their argument, that if we abolish slavery, our white women are in danger. So Karen knows that she is, although she may not be equal to white men, she knows that white men value her. Now, why they value her, that's a conversation that y'all need to have with white men, but why? But she knows that at some place she's valued, even if it's rooted in violence and inequity. And she thrives on that. She has survived on that. Um, there was an article in 1901 by a, a writer. Uh, his name was uh, George Winston. I think that was his name. And he said uh, something to the fact that like, when a knock is heard on a door, white women shudder with horror because it's the thought that this black brute is lurking in the dark. He's a monstrous beast and he's crazed with lust. Like this is the kind of stuff that was in newspapers. Right. Um, And so if that is how your great grandmother thought of black men, black people, then she's going to teach you things and then you're going to teach your child things. And so even though it doesn't look the same way it looked originally. 
right? It's still there. It's kind of like a recipe. You know, you pass down recipes and you may tweak it. New things come up, but a pie, the sweet potato pie is still the sweet potato pie at the mm-hmm. end. So y'all have been doing it. You change the recipe. Like from one generation to the next, you change the recipe, but it's still the same. See, I love history. Um, I love, and I'm glad you brought up a book because by the time we debrief this episode, I will have read that book uh, because I think that book if what I'm getting from what you talked about is kind of like the Willie Lynch letter, you know, it's like the Willie Lynch letter was because I'm a scientist. It was sci- a scientific way to create a slave, you know, like we're going to do this. It's very systematic. I have an algorithmic mind like A plus B plus C will equal D. This artery goes here like that is what it was done when you created a slave, the psychology, you know, and so to think that. How do we further make sure that for generations, white women are protected? Let's even use white women. Let's make sure when we give them a gift, you show that, look, we don't even care about you so much. Y'all can't own land. Yo, but go ahead and take these black folks right here as a gift. That's some powerful, like, a vision. You know what I'm saying? And there's a scene in Birth of a Nation that, oh, like, the white girl was holding by a rope and skipping with the black girl and she was just loving it you know and i'm when i saw that first it gave me chills and i did not know i just thought it was a scene from a movie to give you more but that's actually historical data to say that was my gift as if it was a dog look at my new pet you know what i mean and then it's like okay what kind of dog you got nah my pet is a black little girl so now she, I can play with her. I have a toy. I have a living doll. I, I was gifted a person to give me company, but not have, yo, that is to me another way to show the brilliance of white supremacy because they attack the situation in so many different ways that it's like, yo, we won't lose. We won't lose for the rest of our life here in America. We're going to be on top. And like, so when I talk to anyone, when, we, when I'm talking and I'm talking about white supremacy, people like, you know, stop is not that serious. It's not anymore. And when I go back in history and tell them about white supremacy and Willie Lynch and how you broke up a household and the e- economics behind slavery. And now to learn this today about how you, they were even a step further and gifted children and humans to show further dehumanization of people that is something that unless the only way to really dismantle something like that is to be as egregious or as audacious as it was to create something like white supremacy there's no way to go in that shit passive because that is a powerful audacious system that has systemic implications when you talk about medicine something i love You know, when you talk about education, something that saved my life, when you talk about housing, when you talk about finance, when you talk about just how you build a city, like every system has a, has a under foundation of, you know what, we got to make sure we stay here in America for the rest of the existence of America. And so this is why when we talk about the fear that a Karen may have, I mean, it's valid. Y'all worked hard to keep this shit going. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you mentioned medicine, it immediately took me to James Marion Sims. I mean, 
if you think about it, he wanted to find medical cures and like processes to ensure the gynecological health of white women. He did so by taking enslaved black women, opening up their wounds, doing all types of medical experiments on them while not being sedated so that he could build equipment. And then what did he do? He turned that into what we now know is gynecological practice, but he practiced and performed these same procedures on white women while they were sedated and taken care of. So, I mean, again, black bodies have been always used and sacrificed at the health of white women, at the protection of white women. So we have been seen as a currency and a commodity to make sure that you get to live. And so that's a problem that you all, we are not a currency. Right. But Karen is at this preface where she still thinks that we are, you know, I read a tweet uh, and I can't remember who it was, you know, on Twitter. You like death scroll and keep going. And this young lady tweeted something that has hit with me, gosh, for the last couple of weeks. She was like, whether you believe in God, whether you believe in the universe, whatever you believe in, we somehow are this small planet in the midst of all of these galaxies that rotates perfectly so that we can actually survive, you know, the moon protects us, the sun gives us life. And she's like, and this is the shit we decided to create. She's like, out of all the possibilities, she was like, this is what we decided to do with being a dot in the middle of the universe. Like, this is how we decided to spend our time. And so like, that has just been really heavy on me because I'm like, I don't even know how to erase that. But I think I think part of it is we need to start looking at what currency really is. I have a really good friend. Uh, she's a critical race theorist. Her name is Dr. Angie Lavara. And she talks all the time that the idea of crime, the idea of currency, all of these things, we made this shit up. We decided that it was so, and then therefore it was, right? So if we decided that white supremacy is this, then we could undecide it if we wanted to. But the real reality is they don't want to. Exactly. I always come back to medicine because it, it, it saved my life. You know, I, I love it. It's like it's like music and art to me. I, I feel like I see it in a, in a weird way, you know. And so when we're talking about vaccine, right, and people ask me, you love medicine so much. Why aren't people of color taking the vaccine? I ask them, well, are you serious? <laughs> like, let's 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 understand the history of medicine. Let's understand um, the exploitation of people of color just to make sure that everyone else is okay. And what I like to, when, when I have, when I speak on, on that, I try to tell them straight, like, I am not here to convince you to take a vaccine. I'm here to ask you, when's the last time you've seen a doctor? Because it's bigger than COVID. Like, we've been living in the pandemic way before COVID, right? We've been and in so, a pandemic for 400 years. That's what I think. You know, and so as a doctor, when we go in there, I told them instead of saying, take this, take this, take this, won't you get a relationship? Won't you understand that there was once a time when the black body was used to make sure I didn't say that then, but now like a Karen was okay. A white man was okay because pain receptors, ours, you know, we high, higher, higher tolerance. So we don't need anesthesia. So cut me up. Take out my liver. Take out my. Yeah, we cool. Like we we just we just animals. But the vaccine is gonna do something good for me. All right, all right, cool. All right. So I've been blessed to. Uh, so I've done it. Now I've I've got my vaccine. You know, and this come from a person who's 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 vaccinated. 
I'm not here to convince you. I just know the risk that I take with the work that I do as an activist that you say, you know what? I'll, I'll do this. But I understand fully why a person would slam the door in my face when coming to and say, hey, have you thought about taking the COVID vaccine? Yo, get the fuck off my stoop. True. You right. You right. Because we're used as currency. We're used as a commodity. And so I want to fight so that we don't we don't run out. Like the money will run out. So my job, like as I sit here and talk to you again, I'm so motivated because I don't want to run out. I don't want to no longer be a, cur- a a commodity. And so the people I fight for understand the work that Emily and I are doing now is not to make sure that oh we we get likes. It's to make sure that people of color don't run out because we're used. Like we, we uh, what are you talking about? Yo, like you just the the historical creation of care. I don't know. I just think I can. We that's the title right there for the episode. <laughs> <laughs> you even further expanding that idea of like currency and you know the commodity and a trade. You know, black bodies have always been used that way in every era. There isn't one in American history in which we were not sacrificed, utilized, spent, traded. And unfortunately, whether folks want to realize that, I mean, we have, I mean, think about it like this. We have historical accounts from like formerly enslaved uh, black women who shared stories that their mistresses would arrange for them to be raped at the hands of white men or other enslaved black men to ensure that she would become pregnant because she was pregnant and she needed a wet nurse for her baby. I mean, like this is this again. So, you know, instead of hiring a babysitter, like not only do you already own a slave, you decided that she needed to be impregnated so that she could breastfeed your baby. And she would have to breastfeed your baby before she fed her own. Like that's, that's a commodity. Like, and so when you talked about like running out, y'all didn't even want us to run out. You kept breeding. I mean, you talked about there were breeding farms where black men were meant to rape and impregnate multiple black women. Like there were, we talk about plantations a lot, but there were what they called slave farms where literally all they were doing were birthing babies so that they could be sold. Like that was their job was black women to keep having babies, babies, babies. And that's where this idea of being a buck as a black man comes from, because, you know, men can impregnate multiple women at a time, but a black woman can only, or any woman can only have a baby every nine months. So they would have multiple men, you know, forcing them to rape black women in order for white people to have more black people to sell and slave. Like that's, that's crazy to me. And so when folks want to talk about we need to be concerned about Karen's feelings or anything like that, I'm like, stop your shit. I don't care about your feelings. I care about your behavior. I'm not trying to change your little racist heart. I can, I'm from the South. I was like, bless your little racist heart. But when you're in my presence, this is how you're going to behave. And so that's why I do DEI work. I'm not here to change your heart. I'm here to change your behavior. I don't care if you're racist, but when you show up in my office, these are the parameters that you're going to fake it till you make it and go back home. I, but like, and, and we've got to stop trying to like coach people through this. There's no coaching. I don't care how you feel about it. I care about how you behave. Your feelings don't kill me. It's your behavior that does. And right there is why conversations and why prejudice and racism is so destructive because it's not you just having a feeling that I don't like you is that your feeling 
leads to a person in Minneapolis last week getting shot and killed. Your feeling led to that. It's not like, oh, fuck, I don't like, I don't like um, bubble gum and I'm going to sleep. Nah, I didn't kill a piece of bubble gum. The fact that I didn't, I fear this person, let me, and I'm in a powerful position. The accountability is not there. Yeah, you're fired, but I don't care. And now we've seen in real time the George Floyd case where they're trying to make it so that because my man had $20 bill passed off and he may have had a, 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 a problem with addiction and all this. Now the knee on his neck, they're called asphyxia. Come on, man. How can you as a doctor stand up there and knowing the science, understand the medicine, default to, oh, he had a cardiac arrest. Come on, you bullshitting, man. That's a first year mm-hmm. student. Like, come on, man. What are we doing? That's crazy. Mm-hmm. That's terrifying. When you use science to kill someone, that's a different type of, that's that's different, you know? Now you in my fucking lane, man. I take that offensive. Like, you, if you say you do that, and then when it's time for you to do it, you you do not. Yo, you know, and hood like we don't you 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 don't you stand for that. That's crazy. And so as we talk about slavery, and we talk about all this other stuff, and you bring it back to economics, I tell people all the time: slavery, Karen, white supremacy is all about economics. And true freedom comes when we have options. And the options have been taken away from people of color for so long that we just think it's about the color of our skin. No, it has morphed into some skin shit because they had to put a visualization and a justification and and even with religion, it justified it with religion as well, you know? And so they did us a favor by bringing us here, giving us jobs, making sure that we were okay. And the least that we can do for our country is we pay our debt with our lives, you know? And so I think this has been a journey. You know, and it has it's, it's enough is enough. And I don't know. I just want to be the spark that leads us toward the realization that we're so much more than a commodity or currency. We are the cre- we can we can create. We can do we can be we can just be, man. I just want to be. And not at the expense of trying to prove that I am worthy of just being that's that's the problem. Because we have always been commodified that everything that we do is still looked at as a commodity. Even my my joy. My joy is now a commodity, right? Like now you want to have shirts to say black boy joy and magic on it just to make me feel better. Like I can't even just be joyous for a second without having anything that we do commodified, right? Like I can't, you know, I can't swoop my baby hairs to the left without it now being on a Vogue magazine with white women doing it. Like nothing that we do is ever just left for us to just do. Even when we're not trying to be commodified, they found value in it and package it. And that's hard. That's hard to do. Part of that is capitalism. But that's the part that I think this is so exhausting is because, you know, even going to college and getting a good job somehow finds a way to center whiteness when it was never about white people to begin with. It was about myself. Right. But it's like, it always circles back around. And it's like this constant trying to find things that belong to us that doesn't become a commodity for someone else to profit. We haven't found a way to do that yet, nor have we been allowed to. Crystal, when we spoke a while ago, 
you said that white women tend to be the biggest gatekeeper. And I really appreciated hearing from you today, the history and the historical context. And I have a lot of, like, I'm just kind of in, in myself reflecting, God, like I, I went to school. Like why, why didn't I learn when I was learning about slavery, that this was about me, you know, like I learned about history, but even it was, it was a history about the other, other people, not, I obviously learned about the slaves, but even the white people back then were other people. Like I didn't, I didn't insert myself emotionally into that conversation, which I feel like is a deficit of our education system. So I think all the, everything we've said about history today feels so important to be alive and to be alive in our, our consciousness and not just, but me, like me, like my intentions, you know, all that. We can't exist in a vacuum. Can you, you said, so I don't actually know the end of your sentence. You said white women tend to be the biggest gatekeeper. Did you say for black women or for, could, could you just finish that sentence? as however you did before magically a couple of weeks ago. I think, uh, <laughs> I think white women are inherently because of how white supremacy and patriarchy is set up, white women are gatekeepers. Well, first, let me explain the gatekeeping theory. And then that way I can kind of explain how that goes. So gatekeeping theory is centered on the idea that it was originally founded under communication studies to think about how the media disseminates information. So originally it was considered like, okay, if I bring you all this information, but yet you only choose to talk about these two things, then you were gatekeeping the information because you decided to parse out what information other folks were going to get while holding on to it, right? So like, it's the idea of a gate, right? But um, sociologists and activists have taken that a step further to say that's the same, not just with communication, but with progress, right? Like you may know information that will help us get from point A to C, but you may only give us the information that gets us to A to B. Right. And so like you hold on to some of that information for yourself. The other Mm -hmm. thing about gatekeeping, the reason that I say white women are gatekeepers is one, white women being gatekeepers is essentially being Karen. But also white women don't realize that your gatekeeping is a product of patriarchy. You can only be a gatekeeper if you're on the side of the gate that can open it, not on the side of the gate of the person trying to get in. So first Mm -hmm. off, you're already on the side that has access to the resources. Mm -hmm. Right. And I feel like with if we think about the suffrage movement, right, they didn't really start involving women of color until they needed them to get the job finished. So you kept the gate closed until you were until we were needed. And then you opened it a little bit and then you closed it back when you felt like it was too many of us. Right. And then you open it again when you need more of us again. So. You know, it happens in the workplace. It happens, you know, in activism and policies, procedures. The other thing I think that happens is there are white women that want to dismantle racism. They want to dismantle patriarchy. They want to dismantle white supremacy. But if the foundation of who you are was to be a gatekeeper, you were raised to be a gatekeeper. You've got to do some unlearning for yourself. That's not something that I can teach you as a black woman because I'm not a gatekeeper. I wasn't raised to be a gatekeeper. I don't know how to be a gatekeeper, right? That's your job. So if that's a job that you don't want to do, then you need to figure out how you're being manipulated and used as the gatekeeper. And then you need to resign, right? Like that, that's something that you all have to consider. Um, So I think sometimes with white women, they're gatekeepers only because 
they sit at this very peculiar place where they have access to information, even if it's not going to help them necessarily. It could be helpful to us, but as as uh, Courtney already pointed out, like getting us ahead means this idea that there's a detriment. Um, and so that's what this gatekeeping theory is. The other part of all of this that bothers me the most, and I think this is what centers my work, white supremacy, patriarchy, privilege in any way only exists because we have created this idea that there is a limited amount of resources. And conflict only exists when people are fighting over very few resources. We do not have a lack of resources. There is unlimited resources. However, we have said that there's a limited amount and then white supremacy has said who should get the bulk of it first. Patriarchy says who should get the bulk of it next, right? And so now you have people inherently fighting over arbitrary amounts of resources that don't even exist. And so at the root of all of this, Racism, anti-racism work is not going to happen until we stop saying that there's a limited amount of resources based on your race. Patriarchy is not going to be torn down until we stop saying that there's an unlimited amount of resources that exist based on your gender. Right. Like we're, like we're not going to tear down any of these oppressive systems until we stop believing that there is a limited amount of resources. We're always going to be pitted against each other. Mm-hmm. Because everyone thinks that they should have them. And if you've had a 400 year start on being the only one that's been getting them, you're not going to want to give it away. I mean, it, it's just that simple, right? Like there's been uh, experiments done. You know, Jane Elliott even said she was like, name a white person who would be willing to be black. You would volunteer for this. I mean, and if I'm being honest, like, you know, Emily, if I actually like, would you want to be black? Of course, that's going to put you in a tough situation. Cause you don't want to say, no, I would love, I, I would love to be black. Like, you know, whatever this may be, but cause you don't want to come off racist. But the fact that you know, you don't want to is because racism has told you that it is much better to not be mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right. Like, yeah. you know, and the thing about it is I didn't choose to be born black no more than you chose to be born white. I didn't get to right. pick and be like, right. If, if we knew that things were going to lay out the way they were, you think any of us are going to be in the womb? Like, yep, I'm going to check that box right there. I want to live a life. Right. Right. That sounds, that's not how this works. Right. right. So mm-hmm. we've created systems that and a limited amount of resources and have people fighting over resources that are in abundance. They're just being hoarded by one group of people or, a, you know, a, a faction of people who want them. I wonder if we just caught like white hoarding, you know, like to re reorient to what's happening here is like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and the thing is, who are you hoarding it for? The reality is you're hoarding it for your next generation because you don't want them to go without it either. Right. So it goes back to my analogy of passing down the recipes. You know, every generation gets that new ingredient. And like, what would we be giving to the next generation if everyone in this generation had everything that they needed? You know, we would be giving them the freedom to just freedom, be. freedom, we would be giving them yes. a much better world. We would be yes. giving them the freedom. Like I, you know, I haven't been fortunate enough to have children. And all I think about is that when I, if, and when I do, I just want, gosh, I think about my parents raising us and countless parents raising their kids all over the, the world, black and brown kids, um, indigenous kids. And we don't get to be free. 
our childhood stops at a very young age. We may be the age of a child, but we are no longer in the mind of a child from a very young age. And we are exhausted by the time you hit 30, right? There is no, I don't get the opportunity to find myself. I better know who the hell I am early before I get killed, right? Like I don't get to go out and explore. What is there to explore for me? Because everywhere I go is a danger. So I need to be very clear about where I'm going to find myself, right? The other part of it is like raising free black kids. You know, I have uh, some friends who are white who get to raise their kids with the privilege of not having to tell them that they're going to have to work two to three times harder than everybody else because they're black. Gosh, I got that speech at five. I was no longer a kid after five. Right. I knew that already. I knew that when I read Malcolm X's book. Right. You know, and so at some point, like our freedom of just being, you know, the freedom to be able to raise your child. Right. Like being able to things that for some folks are just. Oh, big monumental things, you know, like getting your license. That was scary for my parents, for me to reach the age where I could get my license because they knew I was going to want them. And what did that mean? Right. What was that going to mean for their black child to now drive a car? Right. And unfortunately for my parents, their fear happened. After college, I saved my money, bought my first car. It was a red Mustang. The first day I had my red Mustang, tags on the 30 day actually had dealer tags on the back because the system went down right before I signed my paperwork. So they gave me dealer tags. They told me to go to work, come back the next morning. Okay. I went to work. I was dressed. I left work that evening, driving home. A police car was riding next to me. He slowed down. He got behind me. I slowed down. It was on a dark street, probably like two, three miles up ahead. We had Um, It was like a 24-hour Walmart, like a big shopping area, lots of lights, right? So I put my flashers on to let, because he put his lights on. I put my flashers on to let him know, I see you. I slowed my car down. Also, during that particular time, there had been some impersonations of police officers pulling women over. And they had been telling us, don't pull over on the side of the road, like on for unmarked cars and things of that nature. So here they had this big broadcast about what to do. And so I was like, you know what? I'm going to put my flashers on, let them know I'm not resisting. I'm not trying not to pull over. It was just a dark area. I get to the first gas station. I pull up. They pull their gun out. Three more cop cars come out. They all pull their guns out. They made me get out of my car. They're questioning me. How did you get this car? This car has dealer tags. I'm like, here's the paperwork that they gave me. They made me sit there. Uh, like, Of course, now people are looking at me. I'm, I think at that moment, now that I think back, I know I was terrified, but I was embarrassed. And that angers me. And I was embarrassed because other people were looking at me and all I could think was they think that I'm some kind of black criminal. And I'm embarrassed because now I've just hurt and put black people and black women back. Like I was like, now this is going to hurt everybody. Right. Like I wasn't thinking about myself. I was embarrassed. Like, oh no, I've hurt my, my black community because I am now being pulled over and being held at gunpoint. And eventually it got to the point where they then said that my license was suspended. Now I just left the dealership. We had just gone through all my license stuff. I knew my license wasn't suspended. They told me I could not drive my Mustang home. And I was like, well, how am I going to get home? They were like, you can't drive it. This was pre Uber and Lyft. I called my sister who had just had my niece. Uh, My niece was a couple of weeks old. My sister lived about 45 minutes from where I was. 
So she and her husband had to get up, come drive. My sister had to show her license to prove that she could drive the Mustang. Those cops literally stayed there until my sister and brother-in-law arrived and they saw my sister get in the driver's seat of my Mustang to drive off. The next day, I went to the courthouse to figure out what this was about, waited in line for like three hours, only to find out my license was not suspended. And then I had to go back to work and act as if nothing happened. And so one of the things that changes you when you experience those things, you don't get over it, but more importantly, you realize how you change your everyday I have not had a sports car since then. I traded that car three years later and I now drive a gray Chevy because I will not drive anything else because I don't want to give you just cause to pull me over. Like that's now a decision I have to make about the car I drive, the color I'm driving in. That's not what you think about when you send your 15 year old to get licensed, you know? And, And so we don't get to raise free black kids. So getting a license may be exciting for you, but for Orlando, because still having a license caused him to be dead. Like just things that we would like to do, we can't do. Having a cookout, someone could get killed. I mean, Ruby Bridges was spit on just to go to school. Like at what point, like why is there always a barrier for us to just breathe and be alive? I mean, and even when we tried to separate ourselves during segregation, you would come to our side, destroy us, and go back. I mean, look what you did to Tulsa. You bombed Tulsa. Why? Because you were upset that there were Black doctors and Black lawyers and Black teachers and Black people living Black lives in their own Black neighborhood? At some point, we have to realize that until Black folk are not seen as disposable income for this country, we are always going to be treated like that. When we are doing, minding our own business, that's a problem. When we're in your business, it's a problem. So really the reality is our existence is a problem. Doesn't matter in what form, we're always going to be problematic. And that's not our problem at all. Not at all. What keeps coming up for me is a question about the unlimited resources. You know, it's funny how we have a huge deficit. Coronavirus comes in and all of, all of a sudden we print printing money right so now you you have a situation where oh we have no money until individuals who need it need money so that goes to tell me i was thinking you know what can you imagine if we saw poverty like that say you know what you know, we, we need to get out of we, we need to get this country out of poverty. That'll be a long weekend. If we really wanted to fight drugs, crime in the inner city, all this, that'll be a long weekend. Then we would have the freedom to be free. When you are distracted by poverty, like you cannot be free. Poverty and being poor, that shit is distracting. I can't even go to school. That's why there's a free lunch program. I'm starving, but you telling me about calculus? You telling me about math? Bro, if you get the hell out of here, give me a sandwich? Like, what are you talking about? And so now you feed me. All right, cool. Now I'll start to see clear. So just imagine if we said, you know what, guys? What do we have to do to end poverty? All right, we have to have $10 trillion to the, to, to the budget. 
All right, cool. Let's go in all these communities in Detroit, L.A., Miami, Atlanta, all these places, and 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 just attack poverty. I'm telling you, that'd be a long weekend if we saw that as a problem that's affecting us all, which it is. However, poverty is big business for individuals. So again, it supersedes. Someone asked me, I'm, I'm a digress. Someone asked me, why is it called white supremacy? Recently, all oh, white people are supreme. No, I didn't say that. I told them white supremacy is called white supremacy because it is a system that supports white people. You are not a bad person if you're a white person. You're a bad person if you are if you know what's going on. You understand your privilege and you use it to further suppress and oppress individuals who are not as privileged to be born with the skin that you have. That's the problem, not the fact because you can't, like you said earlier, Crystal, you can't pick where you white or black. Like there's no black person alive that would say, hey, yeah, let me go ahead. This lottery, I'm going to be a black man. So I can't drive. I can't get educated. I got to work harder for the rest of my life. Or I'm going to be a white dude from the moment I'm born. My shit is set. I'm picking a white check all day. That's the reality. So what you said hits home for me, the freedom to be free. And if we address the unlimited resources, because they are unlimited, as seen by the coronavirus. We have a trillion dollars. Nobody care about this damn deficit. That is an arbitrary number just to, to keep, oh, yeah, we got a deficit. We got to balance the budget. What budget, bro? We print the fucking money, man. What are you talking about? We have no budget in the U.S. So now if we have no budget, let's do something with money that's substantial. Let's go into a community and say, let's change this for everyone because all of our futures are intertwined. If that black man ain't getting it, if that black woman's not getting it, this white kid ain't getting it. White supremacy hurts white people too. Yo, come they on, just man. don't see that it hurts them. Yes. It puts mm-hmm. you all at a very disadvantage. I'm not necessarily a fan of his, but one of the things that Lyndon B. Johnson said, he, he said that if you can convince a poor white person, poor white man, that he is better than an educated black man, you'll get two things from him, his vote and his money. So he basically said that even poor white folks will go with being white because they still see value in that even when they are being exploited by those with money. I mean, so white supremacy hurts everybody. It just hurts some folks more than others. And it saddens me that some white folks are okay with being hurt because their hurt just happens to be less. But see- Like y'all are willing to sit in that. A hundred percent. And it's a perspective too. Because of crime, because of white supremacy, if I see a person in my community and he's looking and he's like he's supposed to be there, probably a white person, we got to go up on his head and get what we got because we don't have it. Crime and poverty is, is because of a lack of. If everybody had a piece of this unlimited resource game, man, we'd be walking around here. You could leave your door open because why am I going to rob you when we all eat? Right. <laughs> yeah. I don't care, bro. We all got money. So you're saying the vision of the world we're going for is where everybody is doing better like this, you know, I think it is such a hard thing for people to, to get is like, this isn't just about one group now becoming the hierarchy shifting. Like this is about everyone. And, and I think Emily, you hit the nail on the head. I think one of the hardest things for some people to grasp when we talk about dismantling white supremacy or racism is this fear that black 
indigenous and people of color are then going to treat white people the way they treated everybody else. Because you knew how you treated everybody else was shitty. Right. And, you know, and then you had to come up with the same doing to others as you'd have them doing to you. So you oh, like, okay, Emily, that was a good word. You y'all are afraid of a reckoning and we are not even worried about y'all. We just want you out of our way. <laughs> You're like, come on. Like, we're just Get like, out of my, my way. <laughs> yeah. And I think I said that in the beginning of this talk. Like, I don't yeah, focus yeah, on yeah. Karen. I just want Karen to stop focusing on me. I don't want to go out and harm white folks. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm not trying to go out and harm white men. I'm not trying to go out and harm white women. I'm just trying to not be harmed so I can do in my, my own black business. Like, that's all I'm asking. Right. That's what I'm actually fighting for. But your fear is out of the fear of retaliation that you know would be justified. You know that it's <laughs> yeah. I've heard, yeah. I've heard, yeah. you know, I've seen it float around a couple of times. I've seen it, and I'm pretty sure you all have seen it, where folks have said, you know, this country better be really glad that black folks just want equity and reparations and not revenge. Yep. I think that in our efforts to take care of ourselves, you know, Martin Luther King is touted for being nonviolent. That's because you all were afraid of the reckoning of violence. Right. But you all didn't even want you didn't want the peacefulness either. So the reality is it doesn't matter how we act. You don't want to give it up. There isn't going to ever be a right way for any of us to actually fight for our own freedom. So either we're going to have to take it. Or you all are going to have to realize that it's more harmful for you to hold on to it. What comes up for me now is there's so many times in history where people of color have tried all of those things that um, Ms. Chris has talked about. You know, um, you had the revolt, Nat Turner, going through the South, killing every plantation they come across, right? So when they had to kill that, then you had Martin who said, ah, man, let's do it the peaceful way. They had to shoot him, right? Then you have Barack. Oh, he's the worst president ever. See, when people don't understand history and the dynamics, they make sweeping generalization. We gave you Barack Obama. Oh, yeah? Barack Obama don't make no laws. This is why I fight this fight, because I love to be in a room where someone says, we had a black president. We had a black president that was handcuffed to a to a government that was created to continuously push white supremacy. See, the illusion of change and actually creating change are two different things. And so you had the illusion, Barack's face up there, yo, we can, we can do it. Um, I, uh, everybody crying happy, beautiful thing. But then when he gets in office, everything was critiqued. Congress is saying, I'm going to make this man a one-term president. Everything he puts on the desk is nothing's going to happen. Okay. He had to fight to get the ACA passed. That wasn't a good thing as a doctor. He did his best. Do you understand probably the compromise that he had to make for that to even become law? And so it's so much things that we have to fight for just to be normal. So when you're distracted by a system I don't even I I don't even understand what it looks like or feels like to be free. What does that mean? What does that mean to a black person? And so what does that mean to even a black woman to truly be free? Because when we talk about the civil rights movement, let's be real. We were talking about black men. It goes back to black women always have to choose being black over being 
Black women. I'm and in higher education is the same thing. You know, there's lots of programs out there for Black men to graduate college, but you see Black women on touting on the front covers of the brochure. Black women have very different intrinsic reasons that we go to college and that we try to be breadwinners. More than likely, it's because Black men are going to be imprisoned, right? There, there's got to be income in the Black community at some point. So we take on other burdens. Also knowing that when Black women go to college, we reduce our chances of getting married. When we start making six figures, Black women who make six figures are less likely to get married if they weren't already. So for every advantage or advance that Black women give, we're giving up a sacrifice that goes unnoticed, unthanked, and nobody's trying to solve it. Damn. Right? And that's, I don't, you know, I don't get that. I don't get the luxury of saying, I want to both be a college graduate and, you know, like have all of these things, right? Like I, we go into this world knowing that we're going to have to sacrifice something. Whereas those with privilege come into the world knowing that they can gain something. I'm going to leave this world with less. I know that. I have to leave this world with less to give this world more where you get to leave this world with more. That's not fair. That's not equitable. And for me, that's why I no longer walk in a way in which I'm going to let you go without me letting you know how you've made me feel. Mm. Because even if I know that I can't tear it down, I'm going to be damn sure that you heard me every time. Every time. Because the sacrifices that so many of our community is having to make and continue to make for your comfortability, for the comfortability of, of folks who want uh, you know, I, I, when, and I know we're, you know, gonna talk about, we've talked about so much and I try not to like go on topic because everything kind of connects, but something yeah. that I said after the Capitol riots was that there's nothing that anyone can tell me to unite with anybody who I know would have packed a picnic and watched my lynching as a family event. I won't do that anymore. And I'm not going to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Oh, this has been such a really amazing conversation. I imagine that a lot of our listeners are are like, I want more from Crystal. I want more from Crystal. So I'm going to ask you, um, you know, first of all, do you, can you offer up like a takeaway? Like if you remember nothing else from this conversation, remember this. And then also, can you let our listeners know how they can, how they can work with you and, and how to get in touch with you? Sure. So my biggest takeaway that I want those who are listening to this um, is to realize the human in being Black. Mm -hmm. To realize that we are walking, breathing human beings filled with the same thing that you're filled. And I'm not talking on the, the, you know, kumbaya level of, oh, we're all part of the human race. Um, No, I'm Black. I'm Black first and I'm going to be Black. But Cicely Tyson wrote in her book that it wasn't until she had a movie role where in the movie, uh, her son called, you know, the fake dad father. And this white journalist was like, it never dawned on me what you all called your parents. And she said it was at that moment that she realized that white people didn't even see black people as being human. Mm-hmm. He, didn't, he didn't realize that we call our dad dad. We have aunts. We may not say aunt. We may say aunt, but it's the same. It, you know, like we want to fall in love. We want to have children. We want to eat ice cream. I mean, there was a time in history in the South that Black people could only have vanilla ice cream on 4th of July, despite the fact that a, an enslaved man is who created the recipe for vanilla ice cream. 
Like we can't just do small things. So my biggest takeaway to folks listening to this is what are you doing that's getting in the way of black and brown folks just enjoying their day? What can you remove yourself out of to give me another 24 hours of peace? That's what I want you all to take away from that. As far as how to get up with me, um, I have my website. Uh, it's uh, www.acrystalclearplan.com. Um, I'm also on Instagram far more than I probably should, <laughs> but uh, it's crystal underscore Lanise. And I'm also on Twitter, also probably more than I should. Although most of the time on Twitter, I'm talking about Marvel naps and other things like that. But if you want to join me in, in that conversation, it's uh, Elder Unicorn on, on Twitter. But yeah, that's how you can get up with me, work with me. And, and that's my biggest takeaway is what can you remove yourself from that'll give 24 hours of peace and life to black and brown folks. Uh, I thank you so much for today. And I, I appreciate, I just want to acknowledge and appreciate you, you using uh, the pronoun you when you're talking about white people. And I think that Mm. that's something that my history lessons lacked. It was they, and I just really appreciate that orientation. And Mm. so just want to thank you for that. You're welcome. And thank you for receiving it because sometimes it doesn't get received. Okay. (laughs) Well, anyway. Yeah. And I, as we end, like, I just want to say a little piece, man. I I just really want to appreciate the idiot that thought you couldn't have passed that test because it lit a fire (laughs) under you that, that is um, inspiring to me. It inspired me and, um, and thank you. So appreciate you, bruh. Good luck. We have her now. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you all for inviting me. Peace. Humanize. Let's get it. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.